When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 42, The Conquest of Mexico, part 6. We proceeded along the courseway, which is here eight paces in width and runs straight to the city of Mexico. It was so crowded with people that there was hardly room for them all, some of them going to and others returning from the city, besides those that had come out to see us so that we were hardly able to pass by the crowds of them that came, and the towers and temples were full of people, as well as the canoes from all parts of the lake. Gazing on such wonderful sights, we did not know what to say, or whether what appeared before us was real. For on one side, on the land, there were great cities, and in the lake, ever so many more, and the lake itself was crowded with canoes, and in the causeway were many bridges at intervals, and in front of us stood the great city of Mexico. When we arrived at the great marketplace, we were astounded at the number of people and the quantity of merchandise that it contained, and at the good order and control that was maintained, for we had never seen such a thing before. After having examined and considered all that we had seen, we turned to look at the great marketplace and the crowds of people that were in it, some buying and others selling, so that the murmur and hum of their voices and words that they used could be heard more than a league off. Some of the soldiers among us, who had been in many parts of the world, in Constantinople and all over Italy and in Rome, so that they had never beheld such a large marketplace and so full of people and so regulated and arranged. Benel Diaz del Castillo, The True Account of the Conquest of New Mexico I know that I have discussed Cortez's personality in detail during this series, and I have made the point that he seemed oblivious to the enormous odds against him. I have rammed home that he was headstrong and unwavering in his march towards his goals. Well, I promise I will stop doing that, after doing it one last time. According to my planning, after this episode, we have another five in the series on the conquest of Mexico making this the episode that pushes us over the halfway mark. I promise that the second half will be completely free from analyses of Cortez's personality. The reason I have to do it one last time is that this is the big one. This is the episode where Cortez makes some moves, which seem downright insane considering the circumstances. Where he makes a gamble 
that feels like the odds of success are a thousand to one, but where he does so successfully. It's also the episode where he reaches Tenochtitlan, and as the quote I've just given illustrates, he and the Spaniards are struck by its majesty, and by extension, that of the Aztec as a whole. I'm trying to think of a good comparison. Can you imagine walking into a situation where you're not only on foreign ground, but clearly among people whose achievements match, if not exceed, those of your own? Can you imagine doing that and not thinking, I'd better not push my luck here, I'd better be cautious? I guess, to make some sort of comparison, it's like going into a job interview for a position as CEO of a big multinational corporation, straight out of university, or maybe not having even gone to university. It's like doing that and not being intimidated by the big glass building and the suits and your lack of experience in similar situations. It's like going in there and trying to get the current managers fired by convincing the people interviewing you that you can do a better job. I don't know if that comparison works perfectly, but I do have another which I think demonstrates how Cortez managed to pull all this off. There was a TV show in the UK about 10 to 15 years ago called Human Planet. It was a David Attenborough-style documentary series, but instead of focusing on animals, it looked at the different and surprising ways that humans live around the world. There was one scene which has always stuck with me. You can look this up on YouTube to see it for yourself. In this scene, we are shown one of the ways in which one ethnic group somewhere in Africa hunts. A group of three men crouch behind a rock. Ahead of them, maybe a hundred metres away, a pride of lions has killed an antelope or deer or something. Suddenly the men stand up and start walking towards the lions with steady confidence. The lions notice them and look up in confusion. They hesitate for a while and then they start to run away. The pure confidence of the men scares the lions. They must be dangerous, as they have no fear. Of course, the men do have fear, but the whole trick relies on not showing it. If they let the lions catch even a glimpse of uncertainty, the trick will not work, and their gamble will backfire. They only have a few minutes, however. Soon, the lions will realise that they are the ones who really hold the power, and they will return, angry. The men cut as much meat as they can from the kill and make a quick retreat. This is, I believe, the Cortez tactic. Although I don't know if he'd figured this trick out, or if he genuinely had something wrong with the part of his brain which produced fear. This is also the episode where the mighty warrior emperor, Moctezuma, really capitulates. If we are to give Cortez's personality one last examination... We must do the same for Moctezuma. To avoid starting the episode story at its end, however, and ruining it for listeners who don't already know it, I will do that bit later on in the episode. For now, let's pick up where we left off, with Cortes leaving Cholula, this time headed for Tenochtitlan itself. Having established control of Cholula, Cortes wasted no time continuing onwards. Before setting off, however, he agreed to send the Totonacs back home. Coming from the hot, humid coastal plain, they were a long way from home, 
and in the cold highlands they were out of their element. With his Tlaxcalan allies, Cortes judged that he could afford to let them head back. Spanish and Aztec accounts more or less agree on the events of Cortes's march to Tenochtitlan, but with one small difference. According to the Spanish, responding to the events at Cholula, Moctezuma had seen the writing on the wall. There was no point continuing to ignore the Spanish and hoping that they went away. He formally invited them to Tenochtitlan for an audience. The Aztec sources, however, make no mention of an invitation. Instead, they mention that Moctezuma was sat in his palace, growing increasingly alarmed. Either way, both agree that Moctezuma decided to send a delegation out to meet the Spaniards. They also agree that this was an act of trickery. Firstly, one of the men who went pretended to be Moctezuma. I guess the hope of the real Moctezuma was that once the Spanish had met with what they thought was him, they would maybe be satisfied and leave? It seems unlikely, but it looks like that was the plan. The Spaniards saw through this pretty quickly, however. Moctezuma had also sent some of his sorcerers to try and curse the Spanish at close range. It's not clear if these were the same sorcerers who Moctezuma had previously imprisoned and whose families he had killed, or if these were a new lesser bunch he had been forced to employ after doing that to his best ones. Either way, it didn't work. The Aztec ambassadors returned to Tenochtitlan, and the Spanish followed a few days later. They were on the home stretch now. According to Castillo and the Aztec sources, at this point Moctezuma had already become so unnerved by the unstoppable march of Cortes towards him that he had already started to think that all was lost. This was compounded when the Spanish reached Texcoco, a town across the lake from Tenochtitlan, and one of the three original Triple Alliance cities. This was a real test then. Now that the Spaniards were just across the lake from Tenochtitlan, in the heart of the empire, how would all the parties react? We are told by the Aztec sources that the people of Texcoco reacted by welcoming them. Not a good sign for Moctezuma. The Spanish sources don't mention the people of Texcoco coming to support them. They say that on arrival, they were met there by its king, Moctezuma's nephew, a man named Cacama. With him were many other nobles, rulers and governors of nearby towns. The group was apparently very impressive. Cacama told them that Moctezuma was ill, but that they could meet him soon. Together, they all skirted the eastern shore of the lake to a town named Ixtapalapa, and from there they crossed the causeway to Tenochtitlan itself. Now if you're not familiar with the layout of Tenochtitlan and Lake Texcoco, search for them both on Google Images. There are maps which show the location of the various towns on the lake, and where the causeways were. There are also artistic reconstructions which show what the city looked like on the lake, with the causeways extending out great distances across the water. I think looking at these is necessary to understand just how impressive the whole thing would have been to the Spanish. 
Mexico City is a great place to visit as it is. However, if the Spanish had built their capital elsewhere, and Tenochtitlan had survived in some form, even just as ruins, it would truly be one of the coolest places you could visit. It really was a truly unique place. It occupied every square inch of the island. Walking across the causeways towards it would have taken a long time, and as you got closer, the silhouettes of the Great Pyramids would have grown larger and more impressive. These causeways were also a defensive feature. As they marched across the narrow strips of land, the Spanish realised just how vulnerable they were. The one that they used was a full five miles long, giving the Aztec plenty of time to examine them and attack if they wanted. Cortes ordered them to cross in full armour, partly in case anything happened when they reached the city, but also because they would have been unable to defend themselves effectively while on the causeway. They crossed without incident, however, and were soon at the open gates of Tenochtitlan. Finally, Cortes got to meet the emperor himself, who was stood there waiting. It had been nine months since they'd left Cuba, and three since they'd left their settlement at Villarica. The Aztec sources talk about this meeting in a very different way to the Spanish ones. They give a lot less detail about coming events, so after this meeting we can only tell the story of the rest of this episode as it is given by the Spanish. According to the Aztec, Moctezuma had given up. He had bought into the idea that these were powerful deities and that he could do nothing to influence events. He gave them gifts and greeted them as returning rulers, saying the emperors had been keeping the throne ready and that their arrival was foretold. Cortes apparently responded by saying that the Aztec had nothing to fear. The Spanish do not report quite such a welcome. They say that Moctezuma met them for just long enough to exchange some gifts before leaving. They were shown to a palace which had been set aside as their accommodation. Moctezuma's welcome did not give much away. They appeared to be guests, but there was clearly some talking to be done and some establishing of each other's intentions. The palace they'd been given was luxurious, but it was also sort of defendable, so Cortes immediately ordered cannons set up around the compound in case things went badly. Tenochtitlan's central square, today Zocalo, was nearby, and Cortes ordered some of his men to go there and fire their guns up into the sky. As always, this trick had the desired effect of scaring the locals. It was only a few hours before Moctezuma requested Cortes visit him at his palace, so that they could start to understand each other. Inside his throne room, more gifts were exchanged, and eventually Moctezuma decided to get down to business. He welcomed them with a poetic speech, which may or may not have provided evidence that he believed that they were returning deities. He then said that he wanted to go and perform his religious duties, to pray at the temple, but that the Spanish were free to explore the city and travel as they liked. With that, the meeting was over. It had gone well, however, it would still have been a tense situation for both sides, particularly for the Spanish. 
They were welcome for now, but they were outnumbered enormously, and ensconced in the middle of the heart of the Aztec world. Should that welcome be withdrawn, they would be in a very tight spot. That didn't stop Cortes pushing his luck, however. The next day Moctezuma invited him back to the palace and gave him a tour. This must have been the finest building in the empire, an intimidating illustration of Aztec riches and power. Once this was done, they sat down together, and Cortes immediately started evangelizing about the Christian god and how Moctezuma needed to give up his pagan deities and convert. Moctezuma apparently diplomatically said that he didn't want to discuss religion at that moment, and Cortes dropped the subject for the time being. It was established, the official situation being that the Spanish were welcome personal guests of the emperor, and relations were friendly. In reality, though, the Spanish must have been on edge, and of course they harboured ambitions to conquer the whole place if possible. Moctezuma was concerned about the intentions of his visitors, and unsure of their identity and powers. Both sides kept up the friendly charade, but they were suspicious and tense. It was a full four days before they would meet again, time in which both sides would have tried to discover as much as possible about each other, and decide what to do next. During this time, the Spanish explored the city. They saw just how grand it was, how many soldiers the Aztec had, and how populous Tenochtitlan was. They watched the ball game being played, they saw the central market, and they tasted Aztec food. Incidentally, much of that Aztec food was fairly similar to a lot of what you can find in Mexico today. The Spanish enjoyed tortillas, for example. On the fifth day, Cortes asked if he could visit the great temple of Huitzilpochtli, perhaps the most important religious place in the empire, and where Moctezuma personally worshipped. Few would ever have been allowed inside the temple, but Moctezuma agreed, and he accompanied them personally. If you have ever visited Mesoamerican pyramid temples, you will know how imposing they are, and how steep the steps to the top are. They would have been even more intimidating to the Spanish, as this was, of course, where the strange and gruesome practice of human sacrifice was still taking place. It was one of, if not the most, tall building in the city, and from the top, the Spanish were able to see the whole of Tenochtitlan, Lake Texcoco, and the surrounding country. Again, they must have been struck by how large and developed the place was. They would have clambered awkwardly up the steps in their armour, being careful not to fall, and worrying about what strange heathen things they would find at the top. To the zealous and God-fearing Spanish, this must have felt a bit like they were entering the devil's lair. Cortes, however, was not intimidated, or if he was, he didn't let that influence his behaviour. He again decided to tell Moctezuma how he must give up his religion and become a Christian. He then asked if he could be allowed to erect a cross inside the temple. Moctezuma refused, but he did allow them to build a chapel within the palace they were staying. Despite Moctezuma's apparent compromise, it was probably at this moment that the diplomatic pretense started to break down. Almost immediately, the Tlaxcalan leaders came to Cortes 
and said that they were not being treated well by their Aztec hosts. We have to remember that although the Spanish were strange and fearsome to the Aztec, their hosts knew exactly who the Tlaxcalans were. They were their enemies, mortals with no magic powers, and who would never have been allowed into the city under normal circumstances. The Tlaxcalans were staying in a barracks and not with the Spanish, making both parties vulnerable. They were both, of course, within the city and surrounded by water. The causeways were the only way out, and they had drawbridges which could be raised, meaning that there would be no way out. Beyond them, of course, lay miles and miles of hostile Aztec territory. Cortes also learned of worrying events back at Villa Rica. Aztec tax collectors had come to the Totonac and demanded the tribute which they had always collected. The Totonac had refused, saying that thanks to the Spanish they were no longer part of the Aztec Empire, and the tax collectors had responded with force. Things had turned violent, and the Spaniards left behind at Villa Rica had got involved. Juan de Escalante, the man left in charge there, had been killed in fighting, along with six other Spaniards and presumably quite a few Totonac. Trying to break off part of the Aztec Empire, the Totonacs, in the first place had been an aggressive move, but now it had come to violence. There was no way that the pretense of being welcome guests could continue much longer. Cortes had to do something. Perhaps he should get out of the city and find somewhere where he could defend himself better. Of course, that would have been way too sensible and cautious for Cortes. He was vulnerable here in the city, but he reasoned that all he needed to shore up his position was a bargaining chip, some collateral as insurance, and he had an idea about how to obtain the most powerful bargaining chip of all. Cortes requested another meeting with Moctezuma, and the two met in Moctezuma's palace. Cortes took with him a fairly large entourage. His plan relied on one risky fact. Although even with the extra men he had brought, he was outnumbered spectacularly within the palace, let alone the city. In that room, however, he would be the one who did the outnumbering. On arrival, Moctezuma began by continuing the pretense of friendliness, and he gave gifts to Cortes. Cortes, however, was done with that, and he confronted Moctezuma with the news from Villarica. Moctezuma must also have known what had happened, but he had decided that direct confrontation was not the best tactic at that moment. It must not have crossed his mind, and really, I don't even think we can blame him completely for this, that he could be in any danger during this meeting. The Spanish themselves were simply in too dangerous a position. Cortes started berating Moctezuma, ignoring all his own acts of aggression and asserting that this was unacceptable on the part of the Aztec. He demanded that Moctezuma accompany him back to the palace which had become the Spanish headquarters. Moctezuma must have been speechless at the cheek of this. He refused, but as he looked around the room, he realised his situation. He had the entire empire outside his door, but in the room 
he only had a few guards. It's thought that this standoff continued for several hours. Can you imagine the tension? There was only one way out of this for the Spanish, to get Moctezuma to come with them. If they could not make it happen, then they would surely be killed as soon as they left the room. If tension spilled over and they killed Moctezuma, they would have lost their bargaining chip, and they would be killed before they could leave the palace. Moctezuma offered to have the tax collectors punished. He offered to have his family held hostage instead. But in the end, after much arguing, he gave in, and he went with Cortes. A new charade had begun. It was in both their interests to hide exactly what had happened in the palace. Moctezuma could not let it known that he had been outwitted. It would undermine the authority which he still technically had. The Spanish could not let the soldiers and the general population know that they had the emperor prisoner, or they would surely be attacked. So Moctezuma walked with them, in a way that suggested that he was going willingly. He was still in charge, and he was choosing to visit the Spanish in their palace. They had pulled off a coup of epic proportions, one which sounds more like events in a 20th century dictatorship than the 1500s. Moctezuma was still emperor, but for now this was of course only in name. Cortes set about pulling the strings. Of course, everyone knew what was going on. They just didn't know what to do about it. The truth of the situation was made even more obvious when three weeks after Moctezuma was taken prisoner, the tax collectors returned from Villa Rica. Cortes had them arrested and burned at the stake, although of course, officially, Moctezuma had decided that this should happen. Cortes had Moctezuma witness this, and it was a message to both him and the Aztec as a whole. While they wanted to keep up the charade, Cortes also wanted to send a message to the Aztec about his power and ruthlessness in order to deter them from trying to rescue Moctezuma. He also wanted to really drive home to Moctezuma the precariousness of his situation. It worked, and if he had not already been afraid and unwilling to challenge the Spanish, he certainly was now. This uneasy situation would continue for the next five months. During that time, the Spanish set about building boats, so that if they needed to make a quick escape, they could sail across the lake. They did discover one attempt to fight back against them, a plot organised by Moctezuma's nephew, Kakama, the man who had met them at Texcoco and accompanied them into the city. Discovering it early, however, they had him imprisoned. Cortes then gathered the Aztec nobles and had Moctezuma tell them that they must obey the demands of the Spanish king and by extension Cortes. He signed a document saying so and thus officially signed the empire over to the Spanish. The charade had broken down and there was now no question who was in charge. The formalising of the situation came with dangers for the Spanish. If nobody was bothering to pretend anymore, then the Aztec anger at the situation would become more obvious. When Cortes decided to destroy the statues of the gods inside the great temple, things almost got violent. 
Again, pressure was put on Moctezuma, who announced that he gave consent for the Spanish to build a chapel within the temple. Outside, however, the population seethed. They were growing tired with all this. They were part of the greatest empire they or anyone else in Mesoamerica knew of, now or at any other time in history. These foreigners were trampling on them and desecrating their religion and culture. They were doing so with the help of their Tlaxcalan enemies. And there were so few of them. There had been the earlier battles and the massacre at Cholula, but there hadn't really been much resistance. Once again, tensions were rising. So to that discussion about Moctezuma and the greater arguments about the conquest, to all my pondering about whether the Aztecs saw the Spanish as gods and how this fits into the wider story of European colonial conquest or whether the conquest of Mexico was inevitable. All of that has been building up to this moment. I've been banging on about it all series, wrestling with the ideas and not really coming to a conclusion that I'm happy with. I make the same promise about this that I did with Cortes. I will leave it after this final discussion for the rest of the series. When it comes to the idea that the Aztecs saw the Spanish as gods, despite the overwhelming evidence of puzzling behaviour that makes sense when viewed like this, and the lack of evidence to contradict the idea, despite the similar example of Hawaii given by Marshal Salins, and despite the fact that the Aztec sources themselves make this point, There is a part of me that can't help but feel like it is too fantastical an explanation. Surely the conquest didn't hinge on a simple misunderstanding. It feels almost like a popular telling of things, one which academics who have studied things in detail would argue against. There are people who argue against it, or at least for a more complicated version of it, The anthropologist Susan Gillespie, for example, says that too often the narrative has been portrayed as a battle between Cortes and Moctezuma, and that Cortes is painted as noble and brave, and that Moctezuma was a coward. I hope I've avoided that trap. I think Cortes would today be judged as a psychopath, although I could imagine him having quite a successful life. And I've pointed out the Moctezuma had a long history of bravery and military success previously. She goes on to build on the Spanish as God's theory, Salins-like, arguing that the Aztec had a secular conception of time. That is to say, everything that is happening now has happened before and will happen again. Time is not a linear sequence, the course of which can be changed. Instead, Events will repeat. The events of the conquest then could not be stopped. It had happened before in their myths, and it would happen again. Incidentally, this conception of time is not actually that unique. Many societies all over the world see it or saw it that way. The recent ancestors of the Aboriginal people I work with here in Australia are among them. She argues, however, that these Aztec narratives of inevitability really took hold afterwards. It was a way of making sense of what had happened, a way of coming to terms with traumatic events. This is a view shared by Matthew Restell, 
The Spanish as God's idea is part of one of the myths in his book Seven Myths of the Spanish Conquest. He too argues that the retrospective creation of such a story was necessary for the conquered Aztec. He points out that the account of the conquest, written by Gomorrah, makes no mention of the Spanish as God's idea. That's intriguing, however, I've already discussed the problems of Gomorrah's work, and so I don't think we can put too much stock in anything it says or doesn't say. I think both Gillespie and Restell have a point. I think that this idea would have solidified post-conquest, and it would have been necessary for the Aztec to readjust to their new circumstances. Like the sportsman who loses their match and tells themselves and the rest of the world that they had an illness, or a problem with their equipment, or something like that, and that they would have won if it wasn't for that. Having examined the accounts though, the basic series of events seems to be, give or take, fairly agreed upon. And whichever way you look at it, Moctezuma and the Aztec did not do well. While these arguments do provide motivation for the invention of the idea, they don't provide a counter-explanation that explains why the conquest happened as it did. Like Renstell, I don't think it was inevitable. In fact, I lean towards the idea that a large amount of luck was involved, and that by rights it shouldn't have happened successfully. But I'm unable to find a more convincing explanation than that Moctezuma, at least, really did hesitate because of the Spanish as God's idea, and so I reluctantly accept it until I'm convinced otherwise. There is one more aspect to this. It could be argued that this argument is condescending, as it paints the Aztec as backwards and superstitious, perhaps even stupid, that they could be fooled into thinking that the people in front of them were not human. As we started to see just now with the discontent of the general Aztec population, and we'll definitely see next episode, clearly many, perhaps the majority, did not see the Spanish as gods, and were pretty fed up with what was going on. They were not backwards, superstitious or stupid. They were angry. Anyway, that's the end of it. I won't subject you to this discussion anymore. You can find many of the original sources and much of the work of academics I've mentioned for free online. If you're so inclined, have a look and see if you agree with my conclusions. Before the events of next episode, there is one more thing of great importance that would happen. And despite the tense and momentous situation within Tenochtitlan, this was something completely external to the city. While he was no doubt trying to work out how to deal with the rising tension among the Aztec population, news arrived from Villarica, back on the coast. Velázquez had sent an army to apprehend Cortés. It had 1,400 men, and thus it far outnumbered Cortés's own Spanish forces. The last thing he needed was to leave Tenochtitlan for a battle against his own countrymen at such a delicate time. But he had no choice. He had to go and deal with yet another large and existential threat. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. 
For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.